This evening's New Testament reading can be found on page 1915 of the New International Version of the Holy Bible. It is from the second book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 through to 17. To the church in Pergamon, to the angel of the church in Pergamon, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, <laughs> says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you call us together as your people and we pray that we would learn from this revelation you've given to your people and that we would be encouraged. We would be fortified, our roots would go deeper and we would draw more richly from you. Amen. Amen. There was a man who had worked at a factory for 20 years. Every night when he left the plant, he would push a wheelbarrow full of straw to the guard past the guard at the gate. The guard would look through the straw, find nothing, and pass the man through. On the day of his retirement, the man came to the guard as usual, but without the wheelbarrow. Having become friends over the years, the guard asked him, Charlie, I've seen you walk out of here every night for 20 years. I know you've been stealing something. Now that you've retired, tell me what it is. It's been driving me crazy. Charlie replied, Okay, wheelbarrows. <laughs> um, if Smyrna's problem was the culture that surrounded them, and we looked at that in quite a lot of depth last week, all the different things that were going on around them, things that were being said from different groups outside the church, then Pergamon's problem is the enemy within. 
It's a very uh, insidious, uh, perhaps even treacherous uh, sense in which Pergamon has lost its way. And amongst the circle of churches that John is writing to, this one stands out uh, as having a really particular internal issue. A uh, couple of little not, uh, navigating data, if you like. It was known particularly for the healing deity Asclepius. Uh, that's, that's as good as much we can get. Uh, but it also had temples to Zeus, Dionysius, and Athene. So it was quite a, it was a town with quite a lot going on. But of course, like the other cities that John has written to, it's heavily influenced by Rome. And in fact, it was a city that it decided to dedicate itself to, to the worship of Caesar. Okay, so it, had, it actually had a temple solely dedicated to the worship of Rome and things Romish. Now, we're not going to go down that avenue, but it does help us understand this comment in verse 13, where Satan has his throne. There was a, within this city, it was a place that worshipped something that stood quite defiantly against and tried to put itself over and above the gospel. Nevertheless, to be fair to them, they have endured. Jesus, in this revelation, says, I know where you live. He, he knows about the place they're in. It's always important <coughs> to not lose sight that our Lord knows what's going on for us. And I know where you live and what kind of place it is. And in fact, here we read, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas. So they had experienced persecution. They had experienced opposition, which had ended up with the martyrdom of someone called Antipas. Nevertheless, their call to having been faithful, having been faithful and endured something, perhaps they took their foot off the gas, perhaps they, they stepped back a little bit, because... This word in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Nevertheless, in spite of everything you have done, these things remain. We see that there is some teaching within the church that has not been of God, has not been the gospel that they've received. And it makes you wonder, what, what happens? Is there a sort of a, do we all, do we all have do, uh, sort of a point that I will allow myself to endure so much and then I will give in? I will allow this much to go on and then I will concede, okay, you've beaten me. Because I think sometimes they, that, that's a, 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 a pattern that we follow. Okay, well, if this happens, then that's it. I'm going to throw it all in. And I just wonder if having endured the, the, the death of, Mar, uh, of Antipas has been one step too far, whether it had frightened them. I can't, it, it, the text isn't very, it isn't helpful on that, but... I wonder if the demands that the faith was undergoing were things that were actually becoming quite tough, too tough for many to endure. They've stood out, and now perhaps they've realised they've stuck their neck out a little bit too far, their heads above the parapet, and now it's getting shot at. And we find that there are a couple of issues within the church which might lead to think about how they'd tried to accommodate or fit in with the world around them but they come from within, which is quite interesting. In verse 14, we read about Balaam, 
um, who enticed the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Now, in, in Numbers 25, Balaam's a bit of a hero. Okay, Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, Peor, is a, is a bit of a hero, and he, he refuses to curse the Israelites as Balak wanted to. But when we get to the end of Numbers, in chapter 31, something else has evidently happened. And Balaam has started to encourage the Israelite men to marry Moabite women. And this has led the men astray. And then there's this battle against the Midianites. It's quite complicated, isn't it? It's quite complicated. There's a battle in which Balaam is actually killed. But the men, the Israelite soldiers, bring back these women. They refuse and we know how harsh the Old Testament can be, but they bring back the women. God is, Moses is furious about this, and he's just one step below God, because God sends a plague for the disobedience. Balak had brought into the people of God this compromise between religion and, and sexuality. And that, if you look at this chapter, there's, there it is, it's right in there, verse 14, committing sexual immorality. And the kind of sexual immorality that went on there would have been temple prostitutes and temple worship and sex in the temple. And that was a way, you go back into the ancient world, that was a way in which um, people would try to dominate God in order to get their way. Show them who was really boss. So there's a very interesting dynamic going on here, but of course it's got all the temptations of, of lustful youth. So Balaam is bad news. That teaching has remained somewhere within the Israelite Jewish community, and it's resurfaced in this place where licentiousness in all of these temples is kind of okay. And you can see that kind of, well, over there, that's what they do in that church over there. Why don't we do it? Or they do it in that temple. Why can't we do that? And this was a problem. We remember looking back at Corinthians last year. Or was it the year before? When we looked at Corinthians, <laughs> we know that this was something they had to wrestle with. And yet the demands from the Council of Jerusalem were fairly straightforward, weren't they? Acts chapter 16 said that they were to refrain from meat, uh, blood, blood, animals with blood still in them, and sexual immorality, and food sacrificed to idols. So there were three quite simple cardinal rules, if you like, and yet within this community they've decided... We're going to do that. We're going to, you know, people around us seem to do it, seem to suit them. Maybe it helps them advance in life. Maybe it helps them fit in. Um, and that's what is going on. The more curious one, uh, I suppose, is the Nicolaitans. It seems that the Nicolaitans um, had a similar sort of set of practice. Likewise, verse 15, you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But the, the more disappointing thing, if, you, if we follow back, uh, the church fathers who wrote about this, Irenaeus wrote about him, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Augustine of Hippo, there are lots of people, Hippolyta, they all wrote about the, this group called the Nicolaitans. We're not sure what their actual issue was, although it's in this phrase about sexual immorality and <coughs> pagan worship. The slightly more worrying thing is that all of these early church fathers attribute the Nicolaitans' activity to Nicholas, one of the seven from Acts chapter 6. So this was again something that had come in, into the church, some kind of pagan practice. I mean, one, one, uh, write, one writer 
Irenaeus, because I like Irenaeus. The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas, who was one of the seven first ordained to the diaconate by the apostles. And they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is very plainly pointed out, as in the Apocalypse of John, so Irenaeus is referring to this, when they are represented as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So commentators on the early church knew about the Nicolaitans, and they knew they also drew it from, from Nicholas, who appears to have adopted some kind of philosophy whereby well, it's, just, it's just not healthy content, basically. But he said his wife was so beautiful, why didn't everybody marry her? And that's, and that's effectively what Nicholas did. But it came out of the church. There was a deacon in the church who was spreading and, and, and sharing uh, false teaching. And, and if you think that's the worst bit of it, that it's not, because the worst bit of it is that the Ephesian church had dealt with them and the church in Pergamon had not. So the Ephesians were commended for dealing with the Nicolaitans, but this church had continued in it. So there's an interesting thing, isn't there? There's holding on to a heresy even though you know that people around you are, re are refuting it and rejecting it. There's something quite insidious about the way that perhaps people moved around. Perhaps there were family members in different cities, and they said, well, no, it's okay where my cousin comes from. But somehow that practice in the church, because these letters are for the whole church, but they were holding on to it. They were holding on to things, and that's the, that's the grass of sin. That's the, that's, the, that's the hold it can have on a person. I know it's wrong. I know, I know this word speaks against it, but I can't let go. What bondage that is. And we all, we've all got our stuff. But we have to wrestle with these things. We're not to go along with them or go quietly into them. And so the church in Pergamon is reminded that actually there's trouble coming. Repent, verse 16, otherwise I will soon come to you, says Jesus. I will soon come to you and I will fight against them. So it's the members of your own church. Jesus is going to come and sort them out. It's kind of, isn't that a prayer we've all had? Yeah. <laughs> Dear Jesus, would you sort them out? <laughs> Please. <laughs> you are so merciful, right? <laughs> but I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. They will come to... This, this sword of the mouth is really important. It bookends this passage. These are the words, in verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Then in verse 16, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. One of the symbols of an emperor, and this is a city that worships the emperor, was the sword. Sword of authority, the sword of light, of power, sword of power of life and death. And Jesus is saying, my sword... I've got a sword too. And my sword is more important because of who I am. And they may have been confronted with Satan's power. They may have witnessed Antipas's <coughs> horrible martyrdom. But that isn't the worst thing that can happen. Because they've abandoned, they're in danger of abandoning <coughs> truth from within. They're compromising from within. And they're abandoning Jesus' truth, which is the highest authority there is. Is it not? I think so. His words aren't just ideas. They're not something that some professor scribbled down and said, hmm, let's try this. 
These are the words of the creator God. These are the ones who formed the universe. These are the words of the one who brought things into being. They're not a dream or a suggestion. They're truth. Jesus himself, just to underline it, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to come to the Father, you come through me. There's no other way. He is the highest authority. And the church, the Christians in it, the disciples who are following Jesus, are supposed to live under that highest truth. It's the objective reality on which people created by God rely on. God has acted in the universe. God is real. He is doing something. And it might feel a long way away since he's done something in our lives. It doesn't mean he's not paying attention to us because at the beginning of this we read, I know where you live. We're not outside of his purview. We're not outside of his care. We need to live in that truth, not the truth of the world. And not to allow that truth to become the church's truth. What's that expression? You know, there's too much church in the not enough church in the world and too much world in the church. That interchange that we sometimes have. There's, there's an element here about that they've lost their holiness and they've lost their passion for the truth that helps encompass and encourage that holiness. But when we read God's word, we will be shaped, we should be shaped by it. We should be slapped at my, I used to read Oswald Chambers, but I couldn't I couldn't face the slap in the face every morning. <laughs> Just a reminder, you know, couldn't speak. I don't get that. Why aren't I, you know, but it's important. It should matter. It should mean something. It should change us. And these, these two little bookends about Jesus' sword are to remind them, people, that you don't just live under his authority. Ultimately, you live under mine. Your boss might suck at work, and you may have difficult people to work with, or what have you. But that's nothing compared to God. And he's on your side, which is good news, I think. <laughs> but it's important to bear that in mind. Sometimes we just see what's in front of us and not, well, you know, I'm going through this. Because there's a reason a sword is two-edged. A sword is partly to, is an attacking thing, but symbolically, a sword is also, the two edges represent the sacrificial element of Christ's life. The one edge cut him. Just that sense that death came to him as well. So he wields it with authority. He doesn't wield it with, with ignorance or, or, or a lack of compassion for, for his people. But there is no other person. There is no other king. They worship Caesar, but he's nothing compared to Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. He is the one, we're told in John's Gospel, that will judge the world. He is the one who will judge it. So there's no room, there's no room for them to, to, to edge. And we talked about this a little bit before in our first, first talk on this. There's a tendency, isn't there, to say, well, I feel God is this. Now, on points of doctrine, that's hopeless. Or I think, or I like to think, what does God's word say? Because that's the truth that he's given us to live with. That's his words for us. And if one day you pick it up and it says you need to change something, you need to change. And we have to live in a world that is increasingly challenging about that, wants us to compromise. In my email inbox over the weekend, it was, there was an alert. I'm not sure if that's the right word. 
that a panel member of the government's Commission for Counter-Extremism had compared evangelical Christians to ISIS and Boko Haram. Now, that, that, that's a think tank in the government, somewhere, you've got to be careful how I put this, somewhere on the Marxist level. Um, but, but that has compared evangelical Christian Christianity to some kind of form of fascism. Now that's an advisor on an unelected body in the government, but, but that's the world that we're in. It doesn't think that much of us. It doesn't have much uh, to say or can think about the authority that Jesus Christ has. But do we say, oh well, that's terrible, and, you know, or do we just say, so what? Actually, so what? They're not speaking the truth. Well, they don't have a handle on the truth. They don't even believe in truth. And yeah, why we might want to say, yes, okay, we need to challenge that, but actually I'm not going to be downhearted by it. Because truth is more important than Jesus has the truth. And he causes people to live in the truth. And that's the, that's the more challenging bit, is to be the kind of people, that if when somebody like that turns up and finds evangelical Christians, he finds actually they're not that bad. They were quite nice to me. They were quite caring. I don't agree with them, but they were quite kind. That's, that's the more challenging bit, is actually to be like Christ. <coughs> Represent him to people who, who might not know any different, or, or suspect that we're all some form of sort of neo-Nazis. That's the challenging bit. I can get, I can angry, get angry about stuff like that, but actually I need to be Christ-like about it. So you know what, I disagree with you, but how are you today? How can I help you? What's the best thing I can do for you? Those are much more challenging things for us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, one word of truth shall outweigh the world. Do you know he said that? He said that in his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech in 1970, after endless years in the gulags under Stalin. And he was able to say, as a man of faith, actually a man of quite deep faith, one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. And I wonder the sorts of things he endured, what was he holding on to? Jesus said, I love you. Maybe he held on to that. If you love me, keep my commandments. Maybe he held on to that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Maybe he held on to those words. Those are truths to hold on to, aren't they? Those are things not to be downhearted. Those are things to share. Those are things to be encouraged by because we lose all sense of direction and perspective. We start saying that's not important anymore. Those are the things that shaped him. What a heroic man. I have to confess, I was going to have a PowerPoint slide of him, but I thought, oh my gosh, it's quite a comical looking man. <laughs> I would have lost the power of what he said. But he did say this years later, speaking to Harvard. In early democracies, as in the American democracy at the time of its birth, all individual human rights were granted because man is God's creature. That is, freedom was given to the individual conditionally in the assumption of his constant religious responsibility. Such was the heritage of the preceding thousand years. 200 or even 50 years ago, it would have seemed quite impossible in America that an individual could be granted boundless freedom simply for the satisfaction of his instinct or whim. Subsequently, however, 
All such limitations have been discarded everywhere in the West. Total liberation occurred from the moral heritage of Christian centuries, with their great reserves of mercy and sacrifice. State systems were becoming increasingly and totally materialistic. The West ended up by truly enforcing human rights, sometimes even excessively, but man's sense of responsibility to God and society grew dimmer and dimmer. And what he's saying is that you know, if, we're going to, if we're going to live and inhabit freedom as God's people, we've actually got to demonstrate that where that freedom comes from and the responsibility that he gives us to be like him, to be his representatives. What the church in Pergamon did was that they said, well, we can't do that. They don't like it when we do that. They persecute us and kill us. So we'll compromise. We'll shift. We'll morph. But the lesson of truth is that if you hold on to it, you demonstrate more power than the world has ever seen. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. That's, that's important truth to hold on to. So I wonder where we are with handling truth. Because it's our job to cling to it. It's all we've got, actually. We, we, I, I loved a couple of the songs you chose this evening. They, they really remind us that we live well, but do we? <laughs> How much is truth shaping each element, facet of our lives and our responsibilities? Good news is that Jesus gives them, those who hold on, this white stone. The other little interesting orientating fact about Pergamon is it was built entirely on black basalt rock. That's important because of why would Jesus mention a white stone? Well, white stones were stones that were given in trials when you wanted to declare somebody not guilty. But Pergamon couldn't find its own white stone. It didn't have any. It was built on black stone. Their guilt had to be taken away and shaped by somebody else. Somebody who would give them a white stone to declare their guiltlessness. So that they would know the truth be vindicated by the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And it's incumbent upon us to live simply holding on to that stone that we've been given. White stone of truth. We can't get anywhere else in a world that doesn't care. Shall we pray? Maybe actually, just maybe a couple of you just want to praise Jesus' name for, for who he is. And let me just thank him. And we all give him space and we 